may be seated. Go ahead and turn this on. How's everybody doing this morning? It's good to see y'all, as always. Hope y'all had a great week. I know many of us probably had a tough weeks as well, and pray that the Lord has blessed you in all your endeavors and whatever you put your hands to. Turn your Bibles today, if you would, please, uh, to the book of Titus. We're going to pick up where Brother Sean left off. The book of Titus, chapter 1, starting in verse 5. The book of Titus, chapter 1, starting in verse 5. I'll be reading from the New King James Version today, by the way. I was going to read from the King James Version, but I know a lot of you guys would be mad if I did that, so. Just season. Trey, you wouldn't be mad, would you? Starting in verse 5. A little loud. For this reason... I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we come before the awesome throne of grace. We come through the precious, holy, righteous, perfect blood of Christ into your presence. The cleansing power of the blood of the Lamb of God that makes us holy, Lord, that makes us acceptable in your sight. We ask, God, that you would put your spirit within us and cause us by your power this morning to to see you high and lifted up, to be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, that you would give us the ability to remove every obstacle that would keep us from worshiping you. And that may be our sin. That may be something we've done throughout the week. It may be unforgiveness. It may be bitterness. Lord, we ask God that you would help us remove these things, cleanse us of these things, that we can fully be present this morning. Help us to worship you with our listening, Lord. 
Help us to hear what it is that you would have for us to hear this morning. Not that they just would hear some sinful man up here banging on the pulpit, but Lord, that they would hear the voice of God. Be lifted up this morning over this worship service, Lord. Be honored with the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout Paul's letter to Titus, Paul stresses the necessary practical working out of salvation in the daily lives of both the elders and the congregation, showing forth that good works are both desirable and profitable for all believers. Titus, a young pastor, faced a difficult assignment of setting in order the church at Crete, Crete being a large island off the coast of Greece. Crete was an island with a storied past and a bleak future. It is approximately 156 miles long and 35 miles wide. And apparently during this period of history, it was covered with over a hundred cities. Imagine that. Crete was notorious for its vile lifestyle. It was known for its treachery and greed. Most of the men on the island were mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder, and the cities were plagued with riotous living, extreme violence, and sexual corruption. Just give you kind of an idea of what's going on here. For many of us, to be honest, this would be a place to be avoided. But Paul seemed to think that this would be the perfect place to set up a network of churches. But somehow these churches became corrupt and those who were leading them were those who claimed to be Christian by name, but their lives were not so. They were actually ruining these churches. Verses uh, chapter 1 verse 16 says that they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient. And I like the word that he uses here, disqualified. For every good work. So Paul assigns Titus the task to go there and set things straight. One whom Paul considered very qualified. Titus was a trusted co-worker and traveling companion to Paul's. He had helped Paul with a number of crisis situations in the past. Titus actually traveled with Paul and worked in a variety of churches that Paul started, including Corinth. Paul writes to Titus advising him to appoint elders, men of proven spiritual character in their homes and businesses to oversee the work of the church. But elders are not the only individuals in the church who are required to excel spiritually, as you know. Men and women, young and old, each have their vital functions to fulfill in the church if they are to be living examples of the doctrine. That they profess. And this is really uh, what I want to stress today, and what I really want to deal with through this letter and, and, and through the verses here that we've read, pulling from other verses as well, because as you know, this is very a very concentrated letter. It's a smaller letter, so it's really hard to stay in one spot without moving throughout the letter to make the necessary points. But I really want to deal with this reality that, you know, um, the importance of appointing godly men to oversee the church. But that's not the final analysis here. It's also godly men and women within the congregation 
also have responsibilities and also are held to a high level of maturity, accountability, and holiness. It's important that we work as a family together for the outcome of the worship of Christ uh, and the edification of one another and that the gospel would go around the world. We all have a part to play. We're all in this together. We're, we're not Roman Catholics where you've got this separation to where you have this hierarchy of spirituality. It's not, that's not so. I'm not any higher, uh, any higher level of spirituality than you are. Yes, God calls uh, pastors to a higher level of accountability and responsibility. Uh, absolutely, we're to be above reproach, but so are you. So are you. And God calls you as individuals of the body of Christ, not only to live holy lives, but you, each and every one of you, have responsibilities to the church as well. And this is what we're going to deal with today. Paul actually gave Titus two missions. The first one that he gave Titus was this, is to straighten out which, which was left unfinished in the surrounding churches. He was to organize the churches. He was to refute false teachers. He was to instruct in doctrine. He was to teach correct conduct for believers. And he was to do this in every city. But as you know, he can't be everywhere at once. And this is the power and the importance of being able to appoint elders in other portions and other churches to oversee what was going on. We know in Acts 14.23, the Bible says they appointed elders in every church. In Acts 20.28, 20, it says the Spirit made you overseers. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 said, one who desires to be an elder desires a good work. This idea of eldership is not coming from man. It's coming from God's holy word. This is God's invention. This is God's idea. And as you see, it formulates all together with the gospel and how we're able to be guardians of the truth. We're to protect God's word. And that takes every single one of us working in harmony together. The task given to Titus, as you all know by reading the book of Titus, was not an easy one. Missionary work is not easy. And the missionary work that Titus was given in Crete, as you can see, was not an easy work. Think about it. He was to point elders in every city. There's a hundred cities there. Can you imagine the work that he has been called to do and the gravity of that work? But God never intended for us to do the work alone. And this is where it gets scary and this is where it gets dangerous because if you think that the work of Christ is to be done alone, then you're in trouble because it's nearly impossible. Have you ever felt that way before? Like you're all alone? That like you you just there's so much going on in the world. There's so many um, negative things. There's so many sinful things going on. And you just wonder how in the world am I going to be able to deal with all these things? Well, you don't have to. You're not to deal with all those things. We're to deal with those things together. Each and every one of us is called to a individual work, a specific work. But that specific work isn't autonomous in the local church. It's together as the body of Christ. This is the reason why Paul wanted Titus to ordain elders in every city, men whose lives were dictated by the word of God opposed to the heathen pagan lives of the Cretans. Paul told Titus in verse 12 that the Cretans were always liars, evil beasts, 
lazy gluttons. I don't want to be called any one of these things, to be honest with you. These are like the three worst things you could call a man, right? A liar, a beast, and a lazy glutton. Philippians 3.19, Paul said, almost kind of reflecting this verse, he says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and the glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul quotes from a Cretan prophet. History tells us that these words come from uh, a man by the name of E. Epimenides. He was a writer from the 6th century BC. The quote was likely widely known both to Titus and others on Crete. Paul simply used these words just to affirm a known fact. The Roman poet Ovid referred to Crete as mendex creta or lying Crete. The Greeks use the verb to criticize what they say as a synonym for a lie. Basically, Crete was known for being habitual liars and compulsive liars. This is kind of the context of what you see. This was their um, their great sin, the apex of who they were, where they were just compulsive liars. Not good. Lying is incompatible with the relationship with the God of truth. And this is why Paul tells Titus to rebuke the Cretans sharply, okay? So they will be sound in the faith. Not just to rebuke them sharply for the, just for the act of doing it because they need to be rebuked, but so that there's an outcome that they would uh, be awakened and be sobered up and be sound in faith. No one's life that is characterized by lying can be grounded in the Christian faith or follow Jesus who himself was the truth. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He's not the truth, the lie, and the life. He is the truth. We worship God who cannot lie. The Christian faith is built on the promises of a God whose promises are always fulfilled. He is a God of truth. And those who worship him must worship him, what? In spirit and in truth. We're not to be lying people. We're not to be compulsively lying. We're not to be habitual liars. We're not to be dishonest. We're not to be uh, what these people were. The Bible tells us that God hates lying. Proverbs 6. That liars will not escape punishment. Proverbs 19 says that their ultimate end is the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8. Knowing this, Paul urged Titus to admonish the Cretans in the strictest way possible in order to save their souls from hell. This is where the standard came in for the elders in verses 6 and 9 in response to the lifestyle of those in Crete. We know that Titus was a Greek. We read in Galatians 2-3, but Titus also was a personal gospel trophy to the Apostle Paul. It's interesting because what Paul says here about Titus is powerful. He says in Titus 1.4 to Titus, a true son in the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. This whole idea to Titus, my own son, really actually means my genuine son after the common faith, which words sufficiently indicate that St. Paul alone had the honor of Titus's conversion. The gospel is extremely important to Paul. The whole idea of planting churches, the whole idea of going into these areas that are just just with pervading dominance of sin and lying and 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 
all kinds of just wicked, vile things happening. Paul's whole idea is not just the worship of Christ, it's always the end result, but the reality of the gospel's power and its ability to change lives. And this is why the planting of the churches, and this is why uh, putting a, appointing godly eldership, godly leaders over these churches, and this is why it's so extremely important for those within the church also to understand why we do what we do, to understand the gospel's power in not only changing someone's life, but also keeping someone's life. It's extremely important that we understand that. We need to value the gospel the way God values the gospel. We need to understand the gospel's power. This is such an amazing reality because there's no other power on the planet that can change a man from a beast to a saint. No good work, no education, no amount of money, which we talk, we heard earlier. No amount of good works. But it's the true power of the gospel. You know what? And that's always tested, not in the best of times. The gospel's power always shines the brightest when in dark places. And Paul saw a church planting opportunity in Crete. He saw cities that were on fire with lust and lying and perversion and blasphemy. He said, oh, what fertile soil for the gospel. Because none of these things can overtake the gospel. Nothing can stop the gospel's power. Sin cannot stop or stifle the gospel. And this is what Paul saw in, in, in appointing Titus over these churches because he knew Titus was a godly man. He was a man who was a man of his word. He was devoted and he was the perfect man for the job. He says in Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city that I commanded you. I'd like to break this uh, verse 5 down into three portions and look at these this morning quickly. The first portion of it says, For this reason I left you in Crete. For this reason I left you in Crete. It's interesting because he says, I left you in Crete. He didn't say, I left a bunch of people in Crete. I was in Crete. I did all these things. He says, No, I left you in Crete. So Paul is talking very affectionately in this reality. He's talking to him personally. This is why I left you in Crete. Let's look at some of the characteristics of Titus. Well, 2 Corinthians 2.13, it says that Titus brought an element of security wherever he went. 2 Corinthians 7.6 says Titus helped those who were depressed. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 7.13 says Titus refreshed others with encouragement. 2 Corinthians 8.16 says, Titus was devoted. 2 Corinthians 8.23 says, Titus was a hard worker. He's a hard worker. And 2 Corinthians 12.18 says that Titus was trustworthy. Can these same things be said about you in your life? Well, these are the characteristics of Titus, and these are the reasons why Titus was put in charge over Crete. This is why Paul could trust him with going to finish his unfinished work. He wasn't going to put somebody in charge that had a, just a messed up life and uh, who didn't have these characteristics 
in his life. These are actually opposite of what we see in Crete. And these are all things that had taken place after his conversion. This is why it's so extremely important to, to go back to the gospel and understand the gospel's importance and the gospel's power. Look what it did to Titus. Look how it changed Titus' life. Look at the characteristics of his life. We can actually um, put our own lives up to that standard and ask ourselves, are we qualified? I'm not talking about for eldership. Are we qualified in the sense to be accountable and responsible for the work that God has called us to do? Any one of us in this room can put together their own ministry. You hear it all the time. Everybody's got a ministry, right? But their lives are an absolute wreck. And they think somehow that their identification comes through what they do, not who they are. And that's, that, that's backwards. And that, that's where a lot of confusion comes in because we, we, we take our ministries and you know they become to us almost at times as you know, a way to clean ourselves up from things that we know that we need to face in other arenas of our lives. Does that make sense? In other words, sometimes it's easier just to, you know, invent a ministry or start a ministry or, or, be, or, or do a ministry because um, a lot of times instead of just facing what God has called us to do as individuals in our own personal lives, we think by doing a ministry we can somehow overshadow biblical responsibility. Which brings us to the next point, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. That Titus should set in order the things that are lacking. You see, I know we can't be perfect. I get all that. I understand total depravity. I understand the, the vileness of our own sinful nature, even after we're converted. I understand that the battle rages. I personally can testify of those battles that rage in my own heart. But before we can have the, the ability, if I could use that word, to be able to go into a work in which Paul is, is having Titus do, our lives need to be at some level matching these qualifications. These qualifications mean something. They're not just meaningless standards in the Bible that we just read for fun. There's a reason for those standards in Scripture, for qualifications. It doesn't mean that you become pretentious and pharisaic just because somehow you think you're keeping this holy standard and now you get to do all these things and you're entitled to all these things. No, it's, it's a reality of your character and your integrity and your trustworthiness. And your work ethic and this the type of person that you are. And this is why the Bible tells us very clearly that there's a standard for elders, those who are appointed, um, to do this style of work because of the characteristics that the qualifications explain. This whole idea of setting in order literally means to, basically means to arrange or arrange in a particular order. Or like if medical writers were writing this, they would say it's, it has the same meaning of setting broken limbs or straightening crooked ones or reformation. So this whole idea of, imagine if you will, this illustration of setting someone's bone is painful. And this is the idea that we get as an illustration to the work that Titus would call to do. That he has to go and literally reset bones and which really ultimately 
is another name would be Reformation. In Ephesians 4.11, it uses the same uh, illustration. It says, And he gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors, and some teachers for the perfecting of the saints. This whole idea, perfecting of the saints, is really the same meaning as to set an order, to put in order, to straighten out, to, to adjust, uh, to make complete, to mature. The perfecting of the saints. The word rendered perfecting akin to the perfection of what we read in 2 Corinthians 13.9. For when it says, we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. And this is the whole idea. Uh, it, it's derived from the root which signifies either to mend what is broken or to complete what is unfinished. Or hence is used spiritually to restore the fallen. Or to perfect the imperfect Christian. Both processes are necessarily implied in the perfection of the individual saints here spoken of and more fully described in the next verses. So this is the whole point that, that, that is happening here. This whole idea of Titus's work is to go in and really to make straight which is crooked. Titus was to set in order. He was to mend what was broken. He was to complete what was unfinished. He was to restore what had fallen. He was to perfect the unperfected. This was Titus's mission and ministry. Therefore, having this ministry, the Bible says, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And this is really the ministry uh, that Titus was given. And, you know, I, I think... Sometimes we, we don't quite understand missionary work and how the Bible describes it. Whether that's planning churches, whether that's you know um, going into a, another country, or whether that's going into the city, or maybe that's even meeting with people around your table, people you don't know, your neighbors or whatever. But it's a serious work. It's a serious work. And all of you know, who've done any kind of witnessing or any kind of confronting, you've been to the abortion mills or anything like this, you know the severity of the work. The college campuses, the street corner, wherever you're at, you understand that the work when you're dealing with lost people, the, the total, it seems to me like, whenever you are going to deal with someone's soul or someone's salvation, the threat of the enemy arises. And because at the end of the day, when you have someone's soul weighed in the balance and you are dealing with a lost person and you're the only person that actually has the actual answer to their soul, the enemy knows that. And you know as well as I do the spiritual warfare that goes into that context of living. And with your own personal lifestyle, even Spurgeon, when he wrote lectures to my students, the first thing they opened up with, not to share your faith. He opens up his the first chapters with being holy, being a holy man or a holy woman of God. Because if you don't have that, nothing else really matters. You can go out and blow people up with, the, with your preaching uh, all night long, but if you're not a holy man or woman of God, uh, it's at some level useless because if you're not if you're not living a life that's biblical and godly and holy, but yet we want to go out 
and perform and do all these things, we're really missing the point. And this is really what, you know, the whole qualifications and really dealing with the life of Titus and how we as the church can look at the calling upon Titus, but also as you continue to read through the book of Titus, you know as well as I do, it doesn't stop with Titus, does it? We've read through Titus. He goes through many different brackets of many different people within the church and shows how these standards and these qualifications deal with each and every one of us and how we deal with others. Which brings us to the third point. And appoint elders in every city I commanded you. Ordain elders. This is kind of the idea that, that, that the scriptures show us in the sense of what kind of person um, meets these qualifications. In verse 6 it says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop or elder, it can be used interchangeably, must be blameless as a steward of God. When you use the word steward, you can use the word protector, or you can use the word defender, or you can use the word preserver, you can use the word keeper, guardian, champion of the truth, or the word overseer. They all really mean the same thing. You really want to get an idea of, of, of what the scriptures are trying to communicate. Just remember, when you're the steward of God in this sense, it's what it's saying is that, listen, you are a protector of God's word. You are a defender of God's word. You are a preserver of God's word. You are a keeper of God's word. You are a guardian of God's word. You're a champion of the truth. You are an overseer. It makes us take the calling of being a Christian much more seriously and the handling of God's word much more seriously and the preaching and the declaring and the sharing of the gospel much more seriously. You realize it's just isn't a bunch of words that you fumble with out of your mouth, but it's a reality of the existence of our being, our life as men and women before a holy God, as a church of the living God. It's more than just what we do. It's really, in essence, it's who we are and what we've been changed to be. We're not to be self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover for what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. One of the main functions of an elder or, or, or an overseer of, of Christ's church is not only to preach God's word, but it's also to, to defend God's word. Most of the apologetics that you see given in scripture, a lot of us will take those apologetics and we think that they're made for the street. We think that they're made for the unbeliever. But in reality, if you take in context, every time we see apologetics used, it's usually the shepherd protecting the church from those who creep in, dealing with them, confronting them. Apologetics were designed for the overseers, the elders of the church, to be able to protect their flock and be able to deal with those who contradict the faith, who come in and want to deceive the weak. We're ready to deal with them. Certainly, by all means, apologetics are used for the unbeliever as well outdoors. But let us not forget that the true apologetics that we read in Scripture, if you read them in context, it's usually dealing with the pastor's role in the church protecting the sheep. Most of your battles, well, most of your battles that happen within the congregation are those who sneak in. 
Wolves in sheep clothing. Those who try to be divisive. Those that have other things up their sleeve. Those that have other ideas in how your church should go. Those that want to usurp authority in the church. All these things we in the pastoral ministry need to be ready and to know how to deal with, with, with these things that come along. This is a part of our ministry. This is a part of what God has called us to do. And having the characteristics of godly integrity and being godly sustains that work. It's the framework on which the work sets. It's the integrity of our being. I once heard a story about a, uh, a young man who was very skinny. And he started working out. And he started taking steroids. And people started noticing very quickly how he grew really fast. He got muscular really, really, really fast. And one day he was just showing off, pumping iron. He was doing, he was doing arm curls with a straight bar. And one of his arms busted backwards this way. And when he was rushed to the doctor, the doctor had told him that the muscle built too fast for his frame. That the integrity of his frame wasn't, hadn't met up with the amount of muscle and strength that he had put on. So the point, moral of the story is this, is that we may be able to want to do great feats of strength and performance, but if the integrity of our frame, which is sustained by the integrity of God's word and being godly men, the work isn't going to have any sustainability. It's just going to be broken and shattered and won't have any efficacy. It'll be very poor and it'll be very disastrous, even to the point we can even shipwreck our faith. If we're immature trying to do a work that God has called us that's too great for us and we attempt this work, it can actually be more, be worse than, than better. It can do more damage to us than good. This is why it's so important for us to understand the qualities and the characteristics and the qualifications are those who are to do the working which God has ordained them to do. This, these aren't just things that God lays out to be a good boy, to be a good girl. These are things, sustainability, things that sustain us to do the work. If we don't have these things, it's, it, we're going to stifle and we're going to bust into pieces. We're going to be like this guy who's lifting weights and doing steroids, but the frame of his body hadn't followed up with the muscle and it just broke. And this is where we don't want to be. Listen to what we, um, we hear in 1 Timothy 3 where it says, This saying is trustworthy. If someone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a good work. The overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, an able teacher, not a drunkard, not a violent but gentle, not contentious, free from the love of money. He must manage his own household well and keep his children in control without losing his dignity. But if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become arrogant and fall into the punishment that the devil will exact. And he must be well thought of by those outside the faith, so that he may not fall into disgrace and be caught by the devil's trap. It's pretty serious stuff. Really, it's, just, it's really ultimately, in essence, it's really the same thing. It's really the contrary of an unbeliever's life, a worldly person. It's just it's contrary to that style of living. It's a godly lifestyle. In Titus 2, it says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And this is where 
um, Paul takes it to the to another level so people don't think that these qualifications are just for Titus alone. Because it's a congregational, if you will, um, eldership teamwork together in the operation of the maturity of the church. Older men, he says, be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. I, I always I always like that idea of a of a more of a distinguished older man who's been walking with the Lord and he's sober, he's reverent, he's temperate, he's sound in faith, he's in love. I mean, every church has that guy, right? I'm sure you guys can remember some of your churches that you went to, the, the older guy that everybody goes to. You know, the guy who's temperate and godly, who's been walking with the Lord for 60 years, you know? And it's it's he just carries that weight of authenticity of a genuine convert. He's not filled with vain glory and, and trying to be anybody special. He's just a godly man. He's been walking with Christ. He just reeks of godliness and holiness and maturity and wisdom. I mean, this is what an older man should look like. He'd be laying around playing video games and, and, and you know, um, acting like a teenager. And, and, you know, as we see a lot of today, I mean, where are the grandpas of yesteryear? Where's the, where's the old, wise, godly grandpas? Where's the old, wise, godly grandmas? Of our day, I mean, it's, it really is, a, it, we're really in a deficit. I want to talk about a deficit. You know, what, what happened to all the godly grandparents? I'm not saying that you don't have godly grandparents. I'm just saying that, you know, we just live in a day where we don't see a lot of the grandpas putting the kids on the lap and reading them books, reading them the Bible, praying over their grandkids. I mean, I don't see a lot of it anymore. I mean, I would love to be able to, I want to be that person. I want to be that grandpa. I'm 51, so I'm getting to the point where it's going to happen, hopefully, soon. But then he points to older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. I mean, what a qualification, right? What a qualification. You don't, I mean, it's so powerful, but you don't really hear that really talked about much anymore. That the, that, that, that the older women, that they be given to these things, opposed to, you know, still being strangled by the pleasures of the world. You know, these are the things what should be our default, you know? Uh, not gossiping and slandering, but we're to admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet and chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Today it's not, don't, don't be obedient to your husband. You know, usurp him, overpower him, overtake him. Everything's egalitarianism and feminism. Hate your husband. Don't listen to him. Criticize him. Put him down. And this is, the, this is the spirit of the age in this country. It is. Don't tell me it isn't because you know it is. It's everywhere. It's gotten so bad that people don't even recognize it anymore. That we even come up with our own ideas how the scriptures should be interpreted in that sense anymore because we just don't like the way that the Bible says it because we just don't want to do that. Why? Because we've been given over to every other thing. Our hearts are stolen. 
to the things of this world, the affections of this world. And this is and this is exactly what happens. I mean, it says right here that, you know, tell them to be obedient to their husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. I mean, that, that's how important it is. I'm not saying that we need to be tyrants, need to obey everything that we say. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're to love our wives. We love our wives correctly, then it's by nature, they're going to listen to what we have to say and want to be submissive to us. I get all that. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying is that this is extremely important to such an extent that you're bordering on blasphemy. And that's a very dangerous place to be. This is usually when people get up and walk out of the church, by the way. Then we get to the young men. Blue. Preston. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, which I believe you are. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. That you're to show yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed. Have nothing evil to say of you. I'm just joking around with the young people, but the truth is the truth, right? These are, these are things to the point where your lives should be so godly that even your opponents don't have anything bad to say about you. Or they're convicted if they do. I mean, this is something that I wish I would have known when I was a young man. You know, I, I became a Christian at 28. And I had been so steeped into the world and the lust of the world and everything that the world had to offer that, you know, um, it would have been great if someone, you know, at a young age would have reminded me of these verses. John MacArthur says this. He says, Whatever the leaders are, the people become. Whatever the leaders are, the people become. So whatever type of leadership is in the church, whatever goes on in the church, whatever the leaders allow, or whatever behavior that they condone will be seen throughout the congregation as well. If the pastors are greedy and, and they're tyrants, so will the people. If they're unloving, unaffectionate, uh, unkind, so will the people. And that, that's just how it works. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, it says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Philippians 1, 27 says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, for the faith of the gospel. Paul says in Philippians 3.13, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this illustration is someone who is like a, like a, um, an athlete who stretches and who is stretched, who agonizes or is in agony of accomplishing some great feat. So my admonition to you this morning, my encouragement to you this morning as the church, that this call upon Titus' life was an extraordinary call, but Titus's life, he was a true convert for one thing. He was a trophy of Paul. 
And Paul trusted him. Why? Because Paul had been through many missionary journeys with Titus. He saw Titus's metal. He saw what Titus was made of. Therefore, he could trust Titus with this great work that he had called him to do. But also understanding through this letter that Paul had written to Titus, he was also letting him know, hey, also listen, this isn't just about you. Let the congregation know, you know, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, just remember, we're all in this together. We all have a job to do. We all have a job to do. And with that together, the combination of that coming together is very combustible in the sight of God. And it makes, it makes a very powerful, penetrating church of the living God. As a local church, look, at we're, we're a small church, but I believe we're a strong church. Because I believe this is an area where we really, I think, focus on. Obviously, we have bumps, we have blind spots, rough spots, and fault lines. I get all that. We all have them. But the reality is, I think the goal of this church is right. I think we all want to strive for holiness. We all want to be what the scriptures are telling us to be in the sense of qualifications, not only just for leaders, but also what God expects of each and every one of us in the areas which God has called us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the encouragement. I personally thank you for the conviction. Lord, that I get when, when I read through this because I see so many faults in my own life. And Lord, I, I thank you that you are a God that restores, strengthens, delivers, rescues. So Lord, I pray, Father, today in Christ's name that there's anybody in here today who truly just doesn't know you. Lord, that doesn't know you, is truly doesn't have a relationship with you that's not converted, not born again, may just be a Christian by name, but are still unconverted. I pray, Father, that you would you would move upon them and you would grant them repentance and faith in your Son, in our Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the believers in this room, both men and women, young and old. Lord, that we would take these words seriously today as, Lord, you've spoken to us as the people of God, that we as the elders of this church would take our calling serious. Lord, and that the people of God, that the the older women and the older men would take their calling as who they are extremely serious. That the young people, Lord, would seek to be godly, not worldly. Not to chase after fame and, and, and Hollywood and all this Garbage that the world tries to take their souls with. But they would hunger and thirst after Christ and the things of God. Lord, that they would love your word. That they would drink deep from the wells of Christ. Lord, that you would weld us together as the body of Christ at 116 here, Lord. And Lord, that we would care for one another and love one another. Not bicker and fight gossip and slander and compete. Lord, that you put that all to death and we would, we would turn our lives over and look at the word of God and say, Lord, this is what we want for you, Lord. This is how we want to live out the remaining years of our lives for the glory of Christ. Lord, we just commit this into your trust. In Jesus' name, amen.